This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Interior Secretary Deb Holland will be in Honolulu next week to speak at the Hawaii Conservation Conference. Holland is the first Native American to hold a cabinet post. The conference is marking its 30th anniversary and will be held at the Hawaii Convention Center. The event brings together scientists and nonprofits working to protect and serve our natural resources and native species. The theme this year, Reflecting on Our Past and Dreaming on Our Future. One of the groups that will be in attendance is Kua Aina Ulu Aumo, better known as Kua. Its members just returned from a gathering in the Pacific Northwest. It was billed as the Salish Summit. They were in Washington State to work in a clam garden with native tribes of the area. It was part of a cultural sharing around aquaponics. Brenda Asuncion is with Kua that took part in this three-year project with other Pacific Islanders and native tribes. They called this event the Salish Summit of the Indigenous Aquaculture Collaborative and the Salish Summit, I think, just refers to the region, the Salish Sea that unite a lot of the areas and people in that region. But we were hosted by the Swinomish tribal community. They're located on kind of like a portion of Fidalgo Island, which was an hour and a half north of Seattle. So we were kind of in that coastal area around Puget Sound. And so this was an effort to get Native peoples together to talk about aquaculture and and food? Yeah, this Indigenous Aquaculture Collaborative started in 2019, formally. And in 2020, many of these same people from Alaska, Washington, British Columbia, they came to Hawaii to learn about fish ponds and lokoi'a and that practice in the Hawaiian Islands of, you know, really cultivating food and enhancing our shoreline resources. And so this exchange, when we went up to the Swinomish community, we were able to learn about their clam gardens and sea gardens and their different forms of cultivating their shoreline resources. Kua is the nonprofit based in Hawaii, Kua Aina Ulu Awamo, and, and we say Kua for short. Kua meaning backbone, so we serve as a backbone organization for various community-based natural resource management efforts. So as a part of that, I coordinate the network of fish ponds across Hawaii. And Kua, we all went as a group together, in addition to some folks from Hawaii Sea Grant. As a part of the larger attendance, was probably over 100 people. There were people from Alaska, Guam, Palau, British Columbia, and the project originally was meant to be like a three-year exchange, and they applied for more funding to continue it. I think because people find a lot of value in meeting each other and learning about these different practices that are also really similar in ways. And so with that extended funding, Alaska is now going to host another kind of convening in 2024. I'm just intrigued, you know, to hear about clam gardens. I mean, I know about fish ponds, but so what was that like for you? It was really interesting. I think as growing up in Hawaii, too, you hear about how our shorelines and just the formation of the islands really is so different from the continent, for example. You know, like we don't have this continental shelf that we learn about in geography, maybe. And, you know, we hear about on the East Coast in certain places and I guess on the West Coast too, but how the tides are just so much more dramatic. And so to see that and to think about how these clam gardens were constructed and what their function was and how they're so different from fish ponds, but really serve the purpose of enhancing abundance in the same way that fish ponds do was really cool. So the clam garden walls or sea gardens, some people call them, they really are built up rock walls, which look really similar to fish ponds here, but they're actually meant to extend the beach area. So to raise the level of the beach and increase the optimal habitat for clams and other kinds of shellfish and other kinds of foods that these people harvested. So the function of the wall is really different from fish ponds, but it was interesting to see how just you know, the traditional use of rocks to enhance our food was like the same concept as in Hawaii. So that was really cool. And was there discussion about how we deal with these traditional approaches to sustainability and then climate change? 
Yeah, definitely. It came up in the sense of, you know, even in our conversations at Kua, when we meet people from around the world and other indigenous land and natural resource efforts, we talk a lot about the long, long time scale of the practices that we're trying to perpetuate. And when we were up there, our hosts were really talking about how these practices of clam gardens have been shown to have existed for thousands of years and through many different changes of the environment and sea levels. And so clam gardens have been demonstrated to exist way up along the shoreline and up into watersheds, what we would think of as watersheds, and then way down. So you can see how these practices that we got to go and learn about were sustained over many generations of change in the environment. And so I think that was a really strong thread It really is the indigenous knowledge and practice that is tied to these places that can allow this kind of work to adapt and then be sustained way into the future, despite, you know, how the climate changes. Is there anything more that we can do to tweak our fish ponds going forward? Well, practitioners in the Hui Malama Lokoi'a network have definitely shared with each other about how oh, they've observed way higher high tides in certain years. Or, you know, they talk about seeing waves and high tides come over their walls in sections that they've never observed before in their working time and at a pace or at a extreme height and frequency that they've never seen before. So we've heard those observations among the practitioners and people talking about how They're definitely accounting for building their walls higher, accounting for the fact that they need more material, that they need to make these adjustments in the way that they manage their fish ponds. And then a few times the idea has come up that maybe in our generation, we seriously need to consider what it might look like to build new fish ponds. Right now, everyone is restoring existing and, you know, historical footprints of fish ponds that are still around and across other islands. But I think people really feel that In order for the practice to continue, like these clam gardens that we learned from, we also need to adapt our practice for a changing climate and a changing environment. And what does that look like if our inland areas become inundated in a way that creates new habitat for what we think of as ideal fish pond habitat? So I think that was also a big learning lesson we were able to take away from the visit. And what does Alaska have? They also have clam gardens. Do they do anything Um, with salmon? So we didn't really learn and talk about this a lot, but the importance and culture of salmon is is really strong in a lot of those areas and, and those cultures. And so we didn't really get to learn a lot about it because the focus of this exchange was on the clam gardens. But I don't think they talk about their salmon culture as one of aquaculture, you know, like cultivating in a sense, it was more a relationship with with the salmon in their natural behavior to be in the ocean and then to use their freshwater river and stream systems. But I think just their practices around salmon maybe were about trapping and just the like relationship with salmon, mm-hmm. but not necessarily like aquaculture as we think of aquaculture. Okay. It might be a, a relationship of cultivation that like we don't really understand. And the group will learn more about the connection that the Native peoples of Alaska have with salmon next year when the summit heads that way. Uh, we've been hearing uh, from Brenda Asuncion, who just returned from a trip uh, to the Pacific Northwest as part of a sharing of indigenous knowledge around aquaponics. Across the mile, I left my true love to find the answers on the road. A depleted federal fund was supposed to help Bikini Atoll Islanders, but did it? Well, that's the subject of today's reality check. On Lucy will be a politics and opinion editor. Chad Blair is on with us today. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So the story is by uh, Thomas Heaton. Yeah, it's a terrific piece, and um, it really is a sad story in so many ways. Many of us know that from 1946 to 1958, the U.S. conducted a series of nuclear tests, 67 total, if I recall, uh, in the Marshall Islands, 
That included Bikini Atoll, uh, and the Bikinians actually were relocated from their atoll to other islands. Uh, they cannot go back because of the radioactivity of their homeland. Uh, they're scattered. Some, many of them are in the Marshalls. Many of them are here. Many of them are on the mainland in places like Arkansas. But the U.S. did set up a fund, trust funds, two of them actually, but one in particular uh, was for re- repatriation, uh, money that would go on a regular basis to qualified Bikinians, and, and they depend heavily on this money. Well, Thomas's story today is how about how that fund is basically gone. There may be about $100,000 left. There's a lot of questions as to what exactly happened, but this much Thomas knows because he spoke directly with um, Bikinians living here uh, who say, Look, a lot of them can't pay rent. They're they're having troubles paying for medical supplies, uh, for for school supplies, any number of things. Um, some of them have had to go and get extra work, go back to work, even senior citizens. Uh, and it's a very sad story, and it doesn't appear uh, to have a happy ending anytime soon. And so the the money, I mean, these funds, how did they get depleted? What happened was is that um, in 2017. Uh, this fund for reparations, there's a separate one, by the way, to help clean up the nuclear devastation, the contaminated soil and whatnot. But in 2017, uh, that fund was transferred, the reparations, uh, to uh, a council, the Bikini Council. Formerly, I think it's the Bikini Edget Council uh, and, and Keeley's. And these are names of islands uh, mm-hmm. in, in, Mag- in uh, near Majuro, which is the capital of uh, uh, the Republic of the Marshall Islands. And this uh, council um, basically blew through the money. It, it's pretty clear what they did with it. They bought two boats. They bought an airplane. And they bought a fleet of vehicles. They, they own an apartment building there in Madro. Uh, they even own 283 acres uh, lot uh, in Hilo, which I believe is, is empty except for mm. a forest. Uh, the idea being that somehow they would relocate Bikinians so they would have a place to, to live. Climate change, you were just listening to your earlier report from Alaska, but climate change, rising sea levels are a very big deal when you're on a low-lying atoll that is barely six feet uh, above the ocean. And, and I know, you know, you've spent a lot of time in that area. Uh, so the question is, what happened to the rest of the money? And, and, and what can people do to reclaim it? Uh, folks on Bikini have been so upset that in the Marshalls, they've actually protested. You don't often see protest from Marshallese, but they've showed up at the the RMI government headquarters. They showed up at the U.S. Embassy. They'd like to have receivership, have the government take it over, meaning the Marshallese government, and, and, and clear it up, find out what happened. But um, that has not been the case so far. The RMI has been very slow to respond to this. In the meantime, there's these folks really waiting uh, for financial support, support that they've depended on for decades. And Thomas did reach out to Esther Kiana, who worked for the Department right. of the Interior. Right. I'm glad you mentioned yeah, the, the Honolulu Council member. She was um, uh, with the Department of Interior during the Obama administration, and her area uh, included uh, the Pacific, including the Marshall Islands, and she's very well-versed on what's going on there. She told Thomas that, you know, the U.S. is partly to blame here, um, but really there's all sorts of allegations of mismanagement, and there is unfortunately a history of foreign aid, U.S. aid, going into the Marshalls and elsewhere and, and being misused. It's not quite clear exactly what happened here, but ultimately if more money were to be provided by the U.S. to help the Bikinians, it would have to come from Congress. And uh, Kia Aina suggested that's a that's going to be a tough sell mm-hmm. um, um, be, because of this history of mismanagement, or at least allegations recently. And Kia Aina is well very familiar with this area. I mean, she grew up in Guam. You know, she's Native Hawaiian, and then just that experience uh, working with the De- uh, Department of Interior. You know, she really has the the depth and understands the issues out there. Yeah, she does. And, and, and it is, you know, at the same time, we should mention there are uh, treaty negotiations going on between the U.S. and the RMI. That's for COFA, the Compact of Free Association. That's that's a separate, if related, uh, arrangement to what happened to the Bikinians. Uh, but that involves millions of dollars. And there is talk that what's been going on with Bikini and the lack of nuclear reparations, if you will, compensation, are factoring into those same talks. So we'll see how it all shakes out. Right, yeah. But you definitely want to know, you know, the accountability piece in this is where did Mm, the money go? But thank you so much, Chad. Sure. 
That was Honolulu Civil Beat editor Chad Blair with today's reality check uh, to read Thomas Heaton's story. Uh, go visit civilbeat.org. Big Island nonprofit Changemakers Hawaii is offering a new training program for individuals and organizations in East Hawaii interested in starting an agribusiness. It is called Ainapreneurs, and it focuses on culturally driven, science focused, sustainable agriculture, and advanced agri technology and workforce readiness. Training is both on site and virtually, and it's free. The conversations Russell Subiano spo- uh, spoke to Changemakers Hawaii Executive Director Olani Lilly this morning. How does obtaining the skills to start an agribusiness mm. contribute to that movement towards self-sustainability? I think what we've seen, and we went out and surveyed local farmers on Hawaii Island, and we found that they've got into farming because they love to grow food. They love to be connected to the land. They love to create products based off of the fruit coming from the land, um, whether, you know, that's fishing or, you know, actual like produce, lettuce, hydroponics, kalo, I mean, the whole range of food products that, you know, even ranching. But what we saw was that they were having difficulty with the business side. And so what we wanted to do was to offer, to build their capacity in that area in order for them to have greater access to financing and capital to really grow their farming so that we could meet the food needs of Hawaii. But also, we also provide what we call back office support. And so if there's a farmer who wants to just, you know, like, I just want to farm, can you help me with, you know, my accounting and my HR, then we will provide those services that was well. So it's sort of a mix of ways in which we allow them to do what we call is their passion profession and to really spend time on focusing around providing a stable food sources for Hawaii while helping them to develop the business as well. You know, all of those sort of what we call back office support that really is not why a lot of farmers got into the business of farming. It's a different skill set, right, than, than actual working the land. When I was young, I don't remember there being a big interest in farming and in agribusiness, even though I lived in a in a town yeah. that has a lot of farms. Do you get the sense, especially now that we're more aware that we need to be more self-sustainable, do you get a sense that there's a higher level of interest from people, especially in East Hawaii, when it comes to becoming more self-sustainable with food? Yes, but I... I... I'm also aware that we understand the challenges around that, particularly when you look generationally. There's not really a lot of interest by kids to get out there and start farming the land. And so we really think marrying technology and the new technology that's coming up to make food production in Hawaii more efficient and effective, more sustainable, and definitely more interesting as a career choice. And that we really... see the pairing of technology and ag as a way to sort of reach out to future generations of people involved in the whole aspect of food production and distribution. That's such an interesting thought, the use of technology Mm -hmm. to attract a, a younger generation. What are some examples of some technological advances that have happened in agriculture that would get someone young excited. There are huge advances happening, Mm -hmm. both in like in small ways in which you are going through your crop with a handheld device, calculating out like rain, water, pH of the soil and inputting all of that information in order to really understand sort of the health of your farm and then being able to connect to like amendments that you need to utilize in order to make your farm as 
productive as possible. You know, there's the whole ind new industry that has definitely technology elements around biochar, particularly, you know, in our sugarcane lands that have sort of been degraded over the years and we need to like bring health back into the soil. <laughs> there's all of that technology there as well. You look across like in California when it comes to like, I saw this one strawberry farm where each strawberry plant actually has its own camera that sends data into this larger data system to measure like how the plant is doing. Does it need more water or nutrients? And so there's like this huge industry around ag tech. And that's just sort of like the, the production food side, you know, growing the plant. And then there's the whole, like, how do you turn that into a product? You know, what is the technology you need to do that? How do you then distribute that? What is the technology? Again, always looking for ways to become more effective and more efficient to utilize our resources like water and soil and air in the most sustainable way and a way that aligns with culturally based Hawaiian sustainable practices. I love this image in my head of these younger farmers who don't have to sweat as much right. because there's a lot more technology supporting the gathering of data, you know, and maybe it's yeah. not so hard work anymore. According to your website, your organization is not only interested in self-sustaining food industry, but also in the economic impacts and financial resources it provides. Yes. Can you talk about how agribusiness and self-sustainability impacts all of us financially as well? Yeah, I think, I mean, one of the ways in which we can really sort of beef up and encourage farming um, in Hawaii is definitely to make sure that the farmer gets paid well, gets a living wage, and not just a living wage, but I'd like to say like a thriving wage, something that allows them to afford to be farmers um, in Hawaii. And that's really important. And so the best way we see to do that is again, to allow the farmer to do what we call is their passion profession and to get in there and grow amazing foods for us while we support them on the business side so that we can create products that are not just, that are like mm, staples in Hawaii, but then can expand to broader food networks and food chains in order to really provide farmers and their food businesses to become an important economic, not just a food engine, but also an economic engine. So again, those families who want to do that work, who are committed to that work, can live and stay generationally in Hawaii. So your organization is offering a free program for individuals and organizations mm -hmm. through which they'll be able to earn industry-recognized agriculture and food credentials that yeah. they can use to start an agribusiness. Yeah. Can you share more details about that program? Yeah, so we started, um, we call it Inopreneurs, and it is really focused on developing and supporting enterprises that both value environment, culture, language, and financial sustainability. We just started our pilot program. It's an eight-week program, and it's really focused on two sort of major like sectors in Hawaii, and that is you know, food and agriculture, and but also technology. So we look for businesses that are maybe doing that exclusively or mar maybe marrying the two together. Mm -hmm. Right now we have a eight week pilot, but we'll be growing that in November to a 12 week program in which they will not only be able to learn how to start up their business and develop their own business plan, help to set up their financials, develop a budget, but at the end of that, they are eligible to apply for a loan through Inopreneurs. And so we are also an emerging native CDFI, which allows us to give out loans. We also bring and partner with federal agencies and other community partners to bring other resources um, that may be necessary for a business, particularly as it relates to agriculture, to the table. And so we partner with different federal agencies to help to support the acquisition of maybe greenhouses or equipment that 
an ag business may need to start up or to expand. So it's not just money per se, but also we try to partner and bring resources to, ta- to the table. In our 12-week program, Entrepreneurs really believes that Hawaiian language is now a language of business in Hawaii. And so as part of Entrepreneurs, whether you're Hawaiian or not, you will be allowed to participate in developing your Hawaiian language capacity, not just with the owners, but also with your staff. We send Hawaiian language people into maybe your place of business and help develop your own language skills so that you can better communicate utilizing Hawaiian language. We just believe that that is a language that sets us apart and we want to make it a language of our economy in Hawaii. Thank you so much, Olani, for your time this morning. Thanks. Take care. That was Changemaker, uh, Changemakers Hawaii's Olani Lilly talking with HPR's Russell Subiono about its new agribusiness training program called Ainapreneurs. We'll have a link to more information on the free program on the conversation page of our website later today. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Aloha Group International, presenting Brazilian songstress Babel Gilberto, live at Hawaii Theater, September 21st. Ticket information at hawaiitheater.com. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Marks Cafe, we'll reprise a show we did with Mana Up and learn about their latest cohort eight. We'll also hear from a couple of their portfolio companies and learn how they scale their local brand to the rest of the world. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for The Conversation comes from Skog Rasmussen, LLC, designing solutions for community engagement, project strategy, government relations, and grants services. Learn more at skograsmussen.com. The month of June is a notable one. June 2023 marks one year since Roe v. Wade was overturned after 50 years, ending the federal protection for women seeking abortions. And last June also marked 50 years of Title IX, a civil rights law that provided equal opportunities for girls and women in federally funded schools. This path of possibility that forever changed our society is thanks to its author, Maui's Patsy Mink, former Hawaii U.S. Congresswoman and Honolulu City Councilwoman. Uh, It was passed on June 23rd, 1972, and it is a day that Marilyn Moniz remembers well. Moniz is a former volleyball standout and University of Hawaii athletic administrator who fondly recalls the five decades that followed. Title IX really set the course for my life, and it's been my privilege to work with Title IX and have that mandate in federal law, and it allowed me to accomplish so many of my dreams And that's what it is. It's a dream maker. It's open doors for opportunity for women and men. Fifty years ago, it passed in June 23rd, 1972. And that was a great year. Many things were happening in our country. And Patsy Mink, our representative to Congress at that time, fought very hard. And she was the co-author 50 years ago when Title IX passed, and that's why it's named after her, the Patsy T. Mink Equal Opportunity and Education Act. And I could go on and on, but I'm going to let you ask me another question. But I can set the scene. I know exactly where I was 50 years ago that made that impact on my life. Okay, so take us there. Well, I was down the road here at Kaimiki High School. I have made 18 years old in April. Roe versus Wade had just passed in February. Watergate was happening. And President Richard Nixon signed Title IX into action June 23rd, 1972. In May, I graduated from high school. 
And I had played volleyball there for three years in a row with my other close, very close teammates. And we were in the gym, May, and in comes walking. The University of Hawaii, very first volleyball coach, Alan Kang, set by the women's athletic director to put a volleyball team together for the University of Hawaii. First time, along with a track program, and that was the beginning of the Rainbow Wahine Athletic Program, which by no coincidence is also celebrating its 50th year of providing opportunities for women to play sports and represent the state of Hawaii. And I got to be one of them because Coach Kang recruited about five of us Kaimaki High School Bulldog players. We were the OIA champions my junior and senior year. And I'm sure in his recruiting and research, he found out what schools had strong players and strong programs. We were coached by a female coach at the time who also impacted my life, Coach Anona Napoleon, a surfer and a volleyball player at the time. She had three children already. Two were twins. She put them in the car carrier and put them behind the gymnastics mat and so she could hit balls at us. So she trained us for three years, and we were the OIA championship, which led to the UH coach coming to recruit us and invite us to play on his team. Wow. So you were there from the very beginning. What was that experience like for you, knowing that you had doors opening? It was really awesome, beautiful, wonderful I mean, women cry when they tell the story because that's the year a lot of them did not have the opportunities to transition from high school to colleges. Not all of them. Many of them did not have women's athletics program. That was the time when this law was the impetus for schools to start to add women's athletics. And the University of Hawaii was one of them. And if it wasn't for Dr. Donis Thompson, who worked in the health education recreation department at the time, to take it upon herself because she had come over in the 60s to start a track program for the university. So she had the background and the experience to be able to start an athletic program for us. So we were fortunate to have her there. And she knew Title IX was on the horizon. She was in the national limelight and on committees and in the AIAW, which is the governing association for women, collegiate sports at the time. So she knew how to leverage it. And she did pretty good in starting the program. Opposition, a lot of opposition. But our men's program was generous enough to provide $5,000 to our women's athletics program so our volleyball program could start and our track program could start. So so talk about you know, what you had to work with. 5000 doesn't really go very far. <laughs> no, it does not. <laughs> so they had to be very creative. We didn't really travel the first two years. We didn't really have scholarships. By my junior year, we had tuition waivers, which helped a lot. And by my senior year, we recruited our very first three mainland recruits that came in, one from Chicago and one from and two from California to help make our team a stronger team. And my junior and senior year at the University of Hawaii, we were second in the nation to UCLA. We were privileged to go to the national championship because Dr. Donis Thompson raised the money and got some support from the state legislature. And without those women and men, we couldn't have traveled. We went to Portland and took second to UCLA. And in December 75, Adonis and Coach Dave Soji started his career. That was his very first year, was my senior year. And both of them took us to Princeton University to play in our second national championship. And we took second again to UCLA. But the real story there was Dr. Thompson, our women's athletic director, I should just say athletic director, took us down to the national capital and Representative Patsy Mink and Representative Sparky Matsunaga hosted our team to a lunch and we talked about volleyball and sports because she was always an avid sports supporter. I think she played basketball when she was in high school at Maui High. But we took this picture, this classic picture, I have it, on the steps of the National Capitol, the team, seven or eight of us, our trainer and Patsy Mann, December 1975. So I, I treasure that. It's an autograph picture with Patsy in it. Well, we've just learned that uh, her portrait is going to be unveiled and it will hang in Statuary Hall. So everybody needs to know her contribution to making the dreams of so many young girls, young women come alive. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a great honor.
it's really hard to think that, you know, 50 years has gone by, and yet in schools across the country, even here in Hawaii, that girls' programs, girls' athletic programs are just getting the short shrift, you know, that we have to fight. That's true. There's still a lot of work to be done. There's progress. Every decade, there's progress. And, you know, for example, my experience at the University of Hawaii, I graduated in 76, and one of the purposes of Title IX was to provide educational opportunities for professional schools for women because there were quotas at that time in the 70s for women in medical school and law school. And that's one of the things that Patsy had to fight against because she could not get into medical school. She applied, as I understand, into a dozen medical schools because her dream was to be a doctor. And she ended up, because she couldn't get into medical school, to law school at the University of Chicago. So that's always in the back of her mind as she's championing women's rights in Title IX through this process in the late 60s and the, and the early 70s. And that's when the university's law school and medical school also started in the 70s. So I had the sports experience. I got to play volleyball. I didn't know sitting at Kaimiki Gym in May I'd ever play volleyball competitively except for maybe club and local women national volleyball, not at a school anymore. But I got that privilege because of her efforts and Dr. Donis Thompson. And so we have to remember that the medical school and the law school, when they started, Title IX was already in effect. And so they didn't have to labor to correct inequities for women at the law school. They could just develop the law school and the medical school, keeping that in mind. And I'm sure the law school is probably 50-50 and the medical school is probably close to that these days. All those efforts started 50 years ago. So I got to go to the UH Law School. You know, and that was awesome because that set the career for me. I was a deputy prosecuting attorney in Maui. Then I went into parks and recreation. And then in 89, I came back to the university and I walked in the footsteps of Dr. Donis Thompson because I was the third women's athletic director at the University of Hawaii. So I'm eternally grateful for that opportunity. So I not only played, but I got to be an administrator at the university. And when I got there, we were already in Title IX violation. We already had an investigation in the late 70s and the early 80s. And there were some legal things that happened nationwide. But when I came in in 1989, I picked up the mantle, I looked in the files, and I educated myself. What is Title IX? Because I had done my law school paper on Title IX. I didn't know I'd ever become athletic administrator. It happened, and that's why I always say it was just part of my destiny. And I was in the right place, born at the right time, and went to the right high school and then college. Well, I was just going to ask, you know, what did you see, you know, at the University of Hawaii? you know, um, the battles that you had to, you know, be involved in to kind of get them to to be in compliance? Well, I think the toughest battles when Donis developed the program, because by the time I was a senior at UH Athletics, she had seven or eight sports already going, struggling, but already going. So she had the vision. She put the initial programs together. And it was tough working with the men's program at that time because, you know, sometimes we're short-sighted and we see our financial resources. And it's a natural thing not to want your program to suffer. So it was a battle and a struggle. So when I came in in 89, Adonis was still there. She was wrapping up a 30-year career at the University of Hawaii. And we put a group together um, that she had done with Eve Anderson back in the 70s. It was a more of a fundraising support group for women's athletics. We put that little group together because we knew we'd have to have struggle. We we didn't need to have support behind women's athletics because there was a lot of changes that needed to be done in 89. So Donna's kind of gave me a model. She goes, you don't have to be like I was. You can be your own personality and fight the battle in your own way. So I took that to heart because I have to work with all these people. Um, We have to figure out how we're going to do this together to build a strong women's athletic program at the University of Hawaii. Well, what were you, I guess, most proud of in your time there? I think it's adding 
four to six sports along the way, getting people to see what Title IX, educate them and make them aware. We only had 98 Rainbow Wahine in 1989. By the time we finished, we had over 200 because the men had 260 already. So they would be equitable in their participation opportunities because access to the athletic program really is the more, most important thing. If you don't have access or the opportunity to play your sport, you don't have anything. You can't get scholarships. You can't travel. You can't vie for a championship. You don't have a team and things like that. So to provide, to me, the most important thing was to have the opportunity to play like I had. I was really fortunate to be there at the right place and the right time and people fighting for our opportunity to play. That was a conversation we had with Marilyn Moniz of back in June of last year. The volleyball standout and former UH administrator talked about how Title IX guided her life over the last five decades. tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. And would you look at the beak on that one there? Well, we're talking about Java sparrows who can be recognized by their less than dainty beaks. But we've also got their lovely calls for you thanks to the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology. Here's biologist Patrick Hart from the University of Hawaii at Hilo with your Manu Minute. Java sparrows are very common birds in cities and towns across Hawaii and really can't be mistaken for any of the other small gray birds that might make their homes here. About the size of a chunky house sparrow, they have huge reddish-pink bills that seem a bit too big for their face, jet-black heads with bright white cheeks, bluish-gray bodies, and, if you look real close, a striking ring of rose-colored skin around their eyes. It's easy to see these birds up close because they love to live around humans. They're often the most abundant birds at bird feeders and on lawns in neighborhoods and parks. They use their huge bills to crack open a variety of seeds and grains, which is why they're so attracted to bird feeders and also why they're considered major agricultural pests, particularly in rice-growing areas around the world where large, hungry flocks can descend on rice fields around harvest time. Because they're so common where people live, the songs and calls of the Java Sparrow can be an important part of our soundscape. Java Sparrows are native only to the islands of Java and Bali in Indonesia, and are not really a sparrow, but a type of a strilled finch. They have been one of the world's most popular cage birds over the last couple centuries and have been introduced and become established in many parts of the world. Interestingly, their populations in their native habitat have declined so much due to hunting and trapping that they're now considered endangered species in those areas. They were first introduced to Oahu in the 1960s, found they really liked it here, and have since spread and become common on all the other main Hawaiian islands. Unlike most other birds in Hawaii, they breed mostly in winter, and they often build their nests in the eaves of buildings or in cavities in the branches of large trees. While they're considered to be agricultural pests and can spread the seeds of invasive plant species, they're not much of a threat to any of our native forests or forest birds due to their habit of preferring places where people live. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Evergreen by Deborah. At evergreenbydebra.com, learn more about porcelain tile by Royal Mosa, made using recycled water and hydroelectric power to create floor and wall tiles inspired by trends in design and architecture. When politicians overhauled welfare in the 90s, work was center stage. Get those people back to work. And it spawned a lucrative industry that profits off people in need. What about the welfare recipient? Think of them more as the product of our company. Their inventory. The Welfare to Work Industrial Complex. On the next Reveal. Beginning this evening at 7, following Mike Mark's Cafe. Under the moonlight. 
Benefits of canoe paddling. A recent study looked at just that. Turns out participation in the sport is quite high here in the islands. Not surprising. Here to talk about that with us is HPR reporter Kuvehi Hirishi. Aloha. Aloha, Catherine. That's uh, right. A new study out of UH found that one in five Hawaii residents have participated in outrigger canoe paddling. And that some of you out there may think, yeah, that's me. Uh, paddling has particularly a high popularity, according to the study, among Native Hawaiians, where 42% have joined in that activity. I think the next ethnic group with the greatest participation was uh, Pacific Islanders, with 31% having paddled in their lifetime. Tatine Santel, interim dean of uh, the Thompson School of Social Work and Public Health, and also the lead author on the study, says these findings that just promoting paddling and other culturally relevant activities could improve physical activity rates in Hawaii. You know, in paddling, there's, you know, the exercise you're getting, but also the healing nature of being out in the ocean, uh, being part of a team, working hard together, connecting to history and culture. And this really restores and creates health from a multi-level approach uh, involving physical, mental, emotional, spiritual health. And that's true of so many other types of uh, culturally relevant uh, physical activities, including hula, which we talked about before. The study was conducted over a three-year period and included more than 13,000 respondents. And I think when you think of uh, the benefits that Centel sort of just listed there of canoe paddling, many who take up the sport aren't um, aware that those are sort of the the, uh, multi-level approach to improving their health. So that was interesting to find. Centel says uh, public health surveys don't typically measure Uh, what's being called culturally relevant physical activities uh, like canoe paddling or hula, which um, Santel has also studied in the past, Uh, but that those um, culturally relevant physical activities can really help mold public health policies and programs to promote well-being for Hawaii's population. We know that many people in our state participate in these cultural practices, particularly Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander communities, and we really want to make sure we build health equity for these communities. And so as we think about promoting well-being in ways that are strength-based, we think that seeing, counting, understanding, learning the types of information we just did in this study really help us understand opportunities to build programs and policies that matter to people, that get them physically active, keep them healthy, and better help to you know, manage their chronic conditions or not get them in the first place. And then we can build access to those activities, right, in schools and clubs and summer programs to promote lifelong wellness and you know, continuing opportunities for people to be healthy and connected, right, to things that bring them joy, to build community, and are so important to public health and our collective well-being. So the UH study was published this week by the Centers for Disease Control and was a collaboration among UH public health researchers, but also the State Department of Health and the John A. Burns School of Medicine, Department of Native Hawaiian Health. Um, As uh, Sintel mentioned, this isn't the first study they've done on culturally relevant physical activities. Uh, Hula, I recall, over the last couple of years, uh, they've been a sort of dishing out studies along those lines, the health benefits of it, the community and cultural benefits of it. But next on the list uh, is surfing, which, uh, of course, very popular. We should get um, some numbers coming out of these studies of the prevalence of this activity, and it will really help uh, perhaps nonprofits or even doctors who know that their patients uh, partake in this activity to really use it uh, to promote uh, again, ongoing physical activity here in the island. So is surfing the only other sport that they're looking at? No, they, no they're also getting ready to do spearfishing, uh, which some may not uh, automatically think of as a sport when they think of um, a sort of organized sports, but it is a physical activity that is very rigorous for those who do take it up. Um, Centel is an interesting sort of um, component of that particular study will be that added 
a food security feature, right, and nutrition and not only getting uh, these individuals, not only spearfishing and having uh, the physical activity health benefits, but that added benefit of uh, being more self-sustainable and being able to uh, find, hunt, and provide for themselves and their families uh, while also taking up yeah, that exercise. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we have heard for a long time about hula for health, right? And, uh, you know, that, that's that been a big thing. I mean, you know, you could still do hula if you're uh, wheelchair bound, you know. Uh, <laughs> but, but it's that, oh, gosh, the social part of it, you know, belonging exactly. to the group and, and pushing yourself. But I don't yeah, know. We, do, do, do you oh, paddle? I did. I did. I do not currently. And now that I read all the benefits, perhaps I should be getting back but it is a, you know when i hear about these particular benefits the way she laid it out you know being uh, the healing nature of being out on the ocean of course something i probably should be doing more of but we don't take that into account i think when our when our parents sort of shove us into <laughs> uh, physical activities and after you know after school sports uh, but paddling has been uh, a big part of my life and so seeing that, like you said, a social component of having to work together with your uh, fellow crew members, because if you're not paddling in sync, you are, the canoe is just going to sit there. Uh, so I, I definitely see this being something that they'll build upon uh, in the future to give us uh, perhaps a more and a more accurate and uh, better numbers. Well, I don't uh, paddle competitively, but I, I did row uh in crew mm-hmm. in college. I don't know if that counts, but... Uh, it should uh, be along the same lines, yeah. yes. yeah, yeah. But I, I do know that, you know, getting out there uh, uh, on the water, uh, you know, when the waves are big, it just really helps condition you and, and uh, improves your mental toughness. Absolutely. Excellent, yes. Yes, well, thank you so much, Kuvehi. Mahalo. That was HPR's Ku'uvehi Ra'ishi talking to us about the importance of paddling in the islands and how it addresses our cultural and physical health. You can read her stories online at hawaiipublicradio.org. We're out of time now, but up tomorrow, we plan to learn more about resetting the Molokai Hoi uh, Canoe Regatta post-pandemic. Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can find our shows archived online by searching for The Conversation Podcast, also on Spotify and Apple. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.